Let's stand and pray because we're going to get into our text uh, in just a few minutes. But if you're able to stand, making fun of Dr. Mike and his, and his wheeler. All right, uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you are here with us. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. We thank you that you have made us one in Christ. Um, we thank you that uh, you've given us so much um, through faith in Christ, Lord. And we just pray you'd make that real to us and just what it looks like to, uh, to walk and live in the unity uh, that you have uh, brought us all into. We do pray for uh, Isaac Parkin. We just pray that you would um, just allow the results of the surgery to be um, better than they could have expected. We just pray that you would give him grace in the recovery period, that everything would go well, and that this would be the last one. They would not have to do uh, anything else. Um, we just pray you'd be with us. I ask you, Lord, to uh, speak through me. Um, give me clarity of, of mind and clarity of speech, Lord, and, uh, and just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can be seated. So look around the room at all of y'all, because we are a different group of people, aren't we? We're different. We are a vast variety of, of different backgrounds, different personalities, different hobbies, different experiences, different upbringings, different church backgrounds. And just think that outside of Christ, what else would bring this group of people together in, in one room, sharing a meal, pretty much getting along, right? Other than other than Christ. Probably not much. It's probably a pretty slim chance we'd all be in the same place doing this if it was not for Christ. And it's, it is our differences or our diversity uh, that is, is one of the beautiful things about God's church, about what he has done. He's brought together a wide range of people. But our, our differences can also be uh, the source of uh, many challenges, right, in the church community, Right, our different personalities, we do things differently. Different church backgrounds can lead to different expectations as to how things should be. Different preferences can lead to a clash in opinions. All these things can and do happen here in our own congregation. Now, if it's like that for us, because we are very different, but we're also very similar for the most part, imagine how much more so in a congregation like the Ephesian church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. They had uh, more than just the things that, that we have as our differences. They had much di bigger difference in backgrounds and cultures, even down to their diets, right? And all of this could very easily have led to issues and divisions in the Ephesian church, which is the, the book that we are in, right? It was doubtless easier like it is for us, for Jewish believers in this church to be more comfortable spending time with Jewish believers and Gentiles the same. It would have been easy for them to prefer one group over the other. And this actually was the very complaint in the early church in Jerusalem in Acts 6. There's a difference in, in language uh, led to the, the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jewish widows being neglected in the daily distribution that caused problems. And so, so in this church of Ephesus, who's receiving this letter, and another thing is I'm, I've just been thinking about uh, the fact that this is a Jewish and Gentile church. That's something very much in mind as Paul is writing uh, the book of Ephesians. Um, something else I could see happening very easily is a, 
a combination of, of religious pride on the part of the, the Jews and maybe a sense of inferiority on the part of the Gentiles because after all, the Messiah had come as a Jew to the Jews, as, as God's chosen people. So does that mean that the Gentiles were, were second-class citizens and the, and the Jews were first-class citizens? I think that's, it's very feasible to think that that could have been the case. But in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul is going to address this very idea as the book of Ephesians is about the unity of the Jews and Gentiles and, the, and what we all have because we are in Christ, what they had, right? And so as, as most of Paul's letters are structured, Paul began with doctrine or the teaching in Ephesians 1 through 3, and then he moves on to application in chapters four through six, which is where we're going to pick up. So, right, so first he gives the facts and then the acts. Okay, so in chapters one through three, Paul uh, is going to talk about all the ways that we have been united. Everything that we have, we have in Christ. And to this Jewish and Gentile audience, everything that you have, you have because you are in Christ. And then in chapters four through six, Paul's going to talk about how to live out that unity. And so we're, we're going to look at chapter four, but not quite yet, because I, I want to give you the fire hose of what Paul has to say about unity, all the, the ways in which uh, the Jews and Gentiles all had the same things in Christ. And I could give you a brief summary, but I want to give you the fire hose, because as, when we finally read verses one through six in chapter four, I want you to hear it with the same ears that the Ephesian church was hearing it, just having heard all these things, right? Because this was a letter, wasn't cut up into chapters and verses to where we read a, a little chunk each day like we do. This was one letter. So they would have just heard all of these things. So I'm going to give you the brief fire hose summary of what Paul has said that we have in, in Christ. Because they didn't hear it as a as a, like a detached call for unity just for the sake of unity, right? We can, we can read these and we're like, we gotta have unity. Unity is the most important thing. But that's not how they heard it. They heard it in light of we've been united in Christ. And so I, I, I wanna try to hear it in that same way. And I think we're gonna see that in Christ, we have far more in common than we have differences. So let's do a recap of chapters one through three, specifically with what Paul has to say on our unitedness. So you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to blaze through it. But starting in chapter one, Paul says that uh, we have every spiritual blessing in heaven. Now, really quickly, uh, we, we learn about some of the, Paul's experience in Ephesus uh, in Acts 19, where it says that he spent around three years there. So first he preached in the Jewish synagogue for several months until he got kicked out. And then in the Greek school of Tyrannus. And uh, verse 10 of chapter 19 says that both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord Jesus. So as we read a lot of these verses, what is implied is that these things are for Jews and for Gentiles. This is what we all have. Now, I think we're all Gentiles in here, so we should be very grateful that these things are not exclusive uh, to a people that is not us. So what, what is the unity? What do we have in Christ? What do the Jews and Gentiles and the Ephesian church have? Well, verse one, uh, 
Or verse 3 of chapter 1 says we have every spiritual blessing in heaven. Verse 5 says we're chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons, all of us. All of us are accepted in the beloved or in the beloved son, which is Jesus. All of us are redeemed and forgiven. We are all gathered into, gathered together into one. We are all given an inheritance, verse 11. Verse 13, we're all sealed with the Holy Spirit. At the end of Ephesians 1, talks about how we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all under his headship. Continuing on into Ephesians chapter 2, we're all made alive in Christ, and we, but we were all dead in sin. We all lived in the lust of the flesh. It wasn't just the Gentiles living that way and the Jews were doing pretty good. No, all of us lived this way. Verses four and five, we were loved when we were sinners, but God has seated all of us in the heavenly places in Christ. He has saved all of us by this gift of grace. We are all saved through faith in Christ. We are all saved apart from works. We are all the workmanship of Jesus, something that he has made. We are all called the good works. All of us have good works that were prepared for us beforehand. That's a lot of things that we have in common. It's a lot of things that we have in common in Christ. Now, as we move further into chapter two, uh, this is the first uh, distinction where Paul says, but you Gentiles, so he's making a distinction. He says, the Gentiles, says, this, that's us. You were far off, but you've been brought near. But it's, it's good to bear in mind that Paul is not talking about a present separation. He's talking about in the past, before Christ, we were, we were far away. Right? We were not part of the covenant promises that God had given to his people. But now we've been brought near to him. Verse 14 says that Christ made the two people into one. Verse 15 says Christ abolished the law which separated us. Verse 16 says that we are both reconciled to God through the cross. That's the only way that we are reconciled to God. Verse 17 says that the gospel was preached to the, those who were far off or the Gentiles and those who were near. We both needed to hear it. And how we all have access to the Father, through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And then 19 through 22 talks about how we are all part of the same building, on the same foundation, on the same cornerstone, which is Christ. There is not a separation here. There is not a, this is the, the, the Jewish part of the body of Christ, and this is the Gentile part of the body of Christ. No, it's just one. It's just one. And then in chapter three, it seems like maybe a little bit of a side trail, uh, because Paul goes, does a deep dive about this mystery that, that he had made reference to earlier, the, the mystery, something that was hidden before, not the mystery like we think of, like we got to find the clues and stuff. No, mystery in the sense of it was hidden, but he says now it's been revealed. And what was the mystery that God had all along been planning to include the Gentiles and to include us into his plan? Right, the, the, the savior of the Jews that they've been looking forward to would actually be the savior of the whole world. And, the whole, and, and in doing so, that this plan, this mystery, it would demonstrate not only to us humans, but it says also to, to the spiritual beings, right, both angelic and demonic, 
the incredible wisdom of God to his glory and praise. So all of creation would look at what God has done at this plan to bring in both Jews and Gentiles, to make them both one, and just marvel at the wisdom of God. So it's maybe a little bit of a side trail in chapter 3, but there are a couple things that I want to point out that we see about uh, the, the unity or what we have together, all of us, uh, in Christ. Verse 12 talks about how we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Christ. Now let's just contrast that really quick with what it was before for the, for the Jews, right? In the old covenant, who could go into the presence of God, into the holiest place? It was one man who had to be a Jew, who had to be in the right tribe, and had to be a priest, and had to be the high priest, and had to go at the right time once a year, and in a very specific manner with fear and trembling. Because if he did it wrong, he was dead. That is very different than we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. All of us, all of us, all of those, those things that narrowed it down to the right person at the right time, being able to go to the presence of God, now it's all of us at any time, not with fear and trembling, but with boldness and confidence. That is what we have in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, it talks about how the whole family in heaven and earth is named from the Father. God is the Father. We're all in the same family, so to speak. We're all the same last name, you could say. We are all named from the Father. Not, not the, the Jewish family and the Gentile family, no. All of us have one Father. So with that in mind, let's listen to, to Philippians 4, 1 through 6, as Paul is shifting from what we need to know to how we need to live. So he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So before we dive into the, the individual words, as I was, as I was thinking about this, uh, this is kind of how it looked in my mind visually, um, is here's the, the, the fact, is that you are united in Christ. This is what Paul had hammered home. Look at everything that we all have in Christ. You are united with Christ. So the, the, the act is that we should walk worthy. Therefore, he's begging us to walk worthy of that unity. Live a life that matches up with the fact that we are united together in Christ. But how do we do that? Well, we need to keep the unity of the Spirit. We need to keep the unity of the Spirit. Or, in other words, maintain the unity that you have through the Spirit. But how do we do that? How do we keep that? How do we guard the, the unity that we have? And he says, it's in the bond of peace. What is the bond? The bond is the thing that holds together, that binds. Right? You could say it's like the glue. Okay, so what do you mean, what do you mean peace? Well, he says that lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another, 
that creates peace in interpersonal relationships, doesn't it? That is how you have peace. So, so we're going to work the other way, interacting with each other in lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with, with one another in love. If that is what characterizes our relationship with each other, we are going to have peace, right, in all of our interactions. If two people are trying to do that, there's going to be peace there. And as the peace holds us together, that's how we maintain that unity, right? The peace keeps our unity intact. And then walking in that unity, it demonstrates the reality that we are united in Christ. As Jesus said in, in John 13, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's, let's get into the verses. Paul starts here and he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, right? Based on everything that he had said before. So he's moving from the facts of unity to the acts of unity. He says, I beseech you. Now notice Paul doesn't say, I command you. He could have been like, I'm an apostle. I command you. This is how you need to live. But he says, I beseech you. Now this, this word beseech, it's actually a, a familiar word in Greek. It's parakaleo, it's the, which is the root of parakletos, which is the word used for the Holy Spirit or the comforter, right? So in the, the sense of the Holy Spirit, it means to come alongside. But in this context, it means to implore, to desire, to entreat, to give exhortation. Right? Some versions translate it as I beg you or I, I urge you. I kind of get the, the, the picture of like a, like a coach, right? A football player like near the end of the game and they're exhausted and they're beat up and they come alongside and they put their arm around, not to be like, it's okay, you're all done now. No, but to, but to exhort them, to push them harder, to go further, to say, hey, keep going. This is what you need to do. Here's the things you need to, the things you need to do. That kind of coming alongside to exhort, to urge, to implore, like, don't stop. So Paul, he, he comes at it from that perspective, from I strongly desire, I want to just entreat you, please do this. So in light of everything that Christ has done for us, of all God has given us in Christ, Paul is imploring us to have our lives line up with this truth. So what does he, what does he implore us to do? He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Right, Not literal walking, but our, our manner of life, our behavior. Let your behavior the way that you act, be worthy of the, the calling with which you were called. As I was reading different, different commentaries and, and studying, there's a, a, a scholar named Kenneth Wiest, and he says uh, this, and it was way better than anything I could have said, so I'm going to read what he said. He says that this word worthy is axios in Greek. It's an adverb meaning in a manner worthy of. But the adjective form means having the weight of or, or weighing as much as another thing. Thus, Paul exhorts the Ephesian saints to see to it that their Christian experience, the Christian life they live, should weigh as much as the profession of Christianity which they make. I think that's a good mental picture that if our profession weighs this much, our life should match up with it as best as we can. There shouldn't be a discrepancy. The actions of our life need to line up with the facts of our faith. So it says, walk worthy 
of the calling, right? This calling that we were chosen by God in Christ, as it says in, in chapter one, and he has set out good works for us to walk in. God has a way that he wants us to live in light of what he has done for us. As Colossians 1.13 says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So God did not just call you out of something. He called you into something. He doesn't just say, stop doing these things. He calls us to something. He has a way that he desires for us to live our lives. So we should live in a manner consistent with that calling. So, so how should we live? How do we live up to what we have been called to? What are the habits, what are the attitudes, the patterns that God has called us to? What makes up that glue that holds us together? He says, with all lowliness. He starts with lowliness. So remember, he's called us to unity. Unity is kept through peace. And peace is made up of, not exclusively, but these four things strongly contribute to peace in our relationships with others. So lowliness, it's a really long word in Greek, tapinofrusone. There we go. I pronounced it wrong. And that's okay. Because, yeah, nobody knows. So this word lowliness, it, uh, it means a lowness or humbleness of mind. It's the having a humble opinion of oneself or a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, humility, lowliness of mind. Again, Kenneth Weiss had a, a, a great comment on this word. He says, the Christian lowliness is no mere modesty or absence of pretension, nor yet a self-made grace. The making of ourselves small is pride in the disguise of humility. But the esteeming of ourselves small, inasmuch as we are so, we are small, says that this word is used in an early secular manuscript, manuscript of the Nile River at its low stage, saying it runs low. So I think that's a, a great picture. It's, it's not the Nile River saying, I need to like, make myself low. The reality was that the water was low. And so that is how it was described. So true humility, it, it, it flows from understanding ourselves as we truly are. Not trying to convince ourselves that, oh, we're, we just need to be humble. No, understanding that apart from Christ, we are totally unworthy. We're totally undeserving of anything good. The expositor's commentary defines it as the lowliness of mind which springs from a true estimate of ourselves, a deep sense of our own moral smallness and demerit. So humility comes from understanding ourselves accurately. Right? Rather than thinking of ourselves as better than anyone else for any reason, we must know that we are only here by his mercy and grace. Kind of makes me think of the Willy Wonka story. You guys all know the Willy Wonka story, the chocolate factory, and there was five golden tickets to go to the chocolate factory. That was a big mystery, and no one got to go in the first four kids, of course, were just obnoxious and spoiled and entitled, but there was the one kid who got the ticket, who got to go in, and he was just stoked. He was happy to be there, just elated. And that's the attitude that we should have, knowing that we are, we are in. 
We are part of God's family. We are part of the kingdom. There's nothing in our lives that made it so we deserved to be in, to be a child of God. That's the attitude that we should have. No sense of entitlement. We didn't deserve anything. No sense of pride or superiority because we're saved by grace apart from works, right? For the Jews, apart from any heritage, they're saved by grace through faith. So as Paul exhorts us to lowliness, we need to be aware of pride. We need to be aware of entitlement. We need to be aware of that subtle superiority complex that comes when we subconsciously compare ourselves, usually favorably, with other people, right? I'm better than this person and that, and that puts us in a place of, of pride rather than humility. So let's interact with one another with lowliness and humility because we're just happy to be here. Then he says with gentleness, gentleness or mildness or meekness. So rather than being harsh and severe in our interactions, we should be gentle. We should be mild. We should treat each other with care, with consideration, with the knowledge that each person that we interact with is part of the body of Christ, is a child of God. Right? We all much prefer to be treated with gentleness, with kindness, with tenderness. So let us do the same to others. Right? You see Jesus interact with people so often in that way with a, a, a tenderness, a compassion. Let us have that compassion for one another. And then he says, with long-suffering. In Greek, it's macrothumia or something like it. Patience, forbearance, slowness in avenging wrongs. The root of this word means literally a long, enduring temper. It's like a, you're, the part of you that likes to explode has a really, really long fuse and it burns really slow. That's the kind of patience we need to have with each other, which I know sounds like no fun at all, but that's what we are called to. Right? This requires much forgiveness, much grace, much willingness to suffer wrongs. Right? We would all much rather have short suffering with each other rather than long suffering. But again, we want others to suffer long with us, with our, our weakness. So let's extend that same grace to others. So in our interactions, long suffering is required. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. The word literally means to, to hold oneself up against or to sustain, to bear, to endure. This means that when my weakness, my shortcomings, my folly are like a weight or a burden to you, it means I need you to not buckle under that pressure, not to snap and get angry and let division and bitterness set in. And then when your weakness and shortcomings and folly come to the surface, then I'm holding those things up as well. That's what he's called us to, bearing with one another in love. And that's the kicker, is that it's in love. We're not to do it begrudgingly, because that's a lot easier to do. I'm going to be patient, but I'm not going to be happy about it, <laughs> right? We do it with a grumpy attitude. We do it with disgust on our face or in our hearts. But he says we're supposed to do it in love. So God is not just saying, here, do the action, but he's telling us the attitude that we need to have when we do the action, he's looking deeper than the surface. But remember that God has bared with us. I think that's the way to use that word, born with us. 
He has suffered long, and he is suffering long. He is very patient with us, and he's going to continue to be patient with us. But remember, these four things are what help us maintain peace. Just imagine if you and everyone in your life always exhibited these four things, these characteristics in all your interactions. Would there be peace in your relationships? Absolutely. Would there be unity in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your church? If everyone was humble, gentle, willing to suffer long, willing to, to hold up others' shortcomings, that would absolutely produce peace. And then he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor literally means to, to make haste or to exert oneself, to give diligence. So this isn't something we can passively do where we just say, oh yeah, we're just gonna kind of you know, keep, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something we have to work at, right? Because forgiveness, patience, long-suffering, humility, none of those things are natural to us. They are all swimming upstream against our nature, against the world, against what's easiest. And if we are passive, we will not do those things. No one is accidentally gracious. No one is accidentally long-suffering. <laughs> that takes intentionality and purpose. We need to exert ourselves. We need to put forth energy in doing those things. So endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That word keep it's literally guard or attend carefully. Like I said, we can't be apathetic about it because it, it is much easier to be impatient, to be harsh, to be prideful, to just snap off and, and say something. You know, it's interesting, it says to, to guard or to keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't say make unity. It didn't say find unity. It didn't say find some people and get together and say, we're just going to have unity here. It's not something that we can create. It says this unity, it's there and we are to guard it because the unity comes from the Spirit. Unity is something that we have in Christ, not something that we make up. That's what it means when it says the unity of the Spirit that comes from the Spirit. It flows from the Spirit. The reason that we can have unity, like I said at the very beginning, the reason that we can all sit in this room together or sit and have a meal together with our various backgrounds and personalities and interests and all these things is that the Spirit of God is in us. And that is our common ground. I think a, a very clear example that, that I have of this in, in my experience is different times when I've been uh, in a setting or in another country with believers who don't speak the same language. Have you ever been in that setting, anybody? You're with believers and you guys can't talk, but there is a tangible, there's a love, there is a, a trust, there's a sense of family, of unity with these people that you can't even talk with because the Spirit of God is there. Maybe part of the reason that there's unity is because we can't talk <laughs> and open our big mouths and ruin it, but it's just such a cool thing when you're in those scenarios to be like, there is no logical reason in the world that we should have unity that we should feel a sense of connectedness, but it's the Spirit of God. So this unity, it comes only from the Spirit dwelling within us. So the Spirit provides the unity, but we have a responsibility 
individually to guard, to protect, and to tend to that unity, to make sure it doesn't get damaged or destroyed. God is not just going to come into a relationship and be like, boom, you guys are going to be united. He's not going to force our will in that. We have to submit our wills to his word and say, okay, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, Lord, please help me. And it's, it's on us. We have to put some skin in the game for that to happen. So this unity, it doesn't mean that we don't go to our brother to address or deal with sin, right? We, we still have to obey scripture in those matters. It doesn't mean that we just pretend like challenges aren't there, but it does mean that we are not to be the cause of the dissension, right? As Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So we're to keep the unity of the spirit, but how do we do it? It says, in the bond of peace. The bond is that which, which binds together like a, like a band, like glue. This word is used in Colossians 2, verse 19, talking about how the whole body is held together by joints and this word, bonds or ligaments, right? The ligaments are what hold different parts of the body together. And so peace between believers is what holds the different parts of the body together, just like ligaments. So we maintain spiritual unity by means of relational peace. So in verses four through six, Right, those, that's the instruction that he's given us, but here he's going to summarize the unity or the, the oneness that we have as believers. There are not two separate faiths for, for Christians, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, right? but we are all united in one. This is what we are united around. So there's one body. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. There's not a Jewish one and a Gentile one. There is one. There's one body. There's one church. It says there is one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who seals us all and fills us all. We are all united by the same spirit. It says just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So all of our callings as God has called us, we all have the same hope that Jesus has saved us, that he has forgiven us, and that he's coming back for us. Our hope for this life and for eternity is Jesus not a separate hope for Jews and a separate hope for Gentiles, is one hope. It says we have one Lord, that is Jesus. He is our master, all of us. He's our boss, our authority, and all of us are gonna have to answer to him, which probably means that sometimes we need to let him deal with somebody instead of thinking that we get to be the Lord and the authority and the boss. So we have one Lord, which is Jesus one faith, not faith like a synonym for one religion, but rather the fact that we are all saved by faith. One means of entering into Christ is through faith, by faith in Christ alone. It's not by works. We all enter in the same way. And then one baptism or one means of publicly professing our faith in water baptism. So again, not a separate thing for Jews and a separate thing for Gentiles, there's one baptism. And then he says, finally, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So we don't have a different God as Gentiles from the Jews. We don't have a different Father. We all have the same Father and the same God who it says is above, through all, and in you all. 
Many scholars uh, seem to believe that this is a, a Trinitarian reference of, of sorts, saying that, that God, the God that we serve, he is above all. He is the authority over all creation. He is through all, that he has blessed us all through the Son, and he is in you all as his Spirit indwells us all. So the one God, the triune God, is our God. We are all in him, we are all saved because of him, and we are all kept because of him. So we are, we are united in him, so we are called to live in unity with each other. So this passage has a combination of very, very practical things like humility and very deeply theological things like God is above and, and through and in you all. But the practical is how we live out the reality of the theological, and that's what we've been called to do. The, the, the doctrine is that we are united in Christ, but the practical is that we have to live united. Because the world is going to see, right? If we are living just fractured and separate and just in bitterness and unforgiveness towards each other, there's no evidence of love. There's no evidence of, of unity there. But it is a testimony to the world that a wildly different group of people even groups that are, are wilder than our differences, can all be joined together in unity through the Spirit. So we've been united as one in Christ, so let's live as one in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that, you, uh, that You've adopted us all, Lord, that You have called us Your own, um, that in You we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help us all to, to maintain, to guard the unity of your spirit, Lord, through the bond of peace, Lord, that we could walk in these things that are not easy for us, Lord. It's much easier to be proud. It's much easier to be rude and harsh. It's much easier to be impatient with each other. It's much easier to not deal with, not want to mess with each other's shortcomings. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would, you would help us to do what you have called us to do, what you offer the abundant grace for, which is to walk in humility and patience and gentleness to bear with each other, Lord. So I pray, Lord, you would just allow us to apply this um, in, our, in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplace, um, and even here at church as we are all together, Lord. We just... Thank you for what you've done. We just give you this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.